Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we'll study one of the Bible's most familiar verses as we begin week five of our current series, The Power of the Gospel. So let's begin our message called God's Sovereignty in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 with Dr. John Newfeld. Romans 8.28 is one of the most often quoted, most easily recognizable, and one of the most loved passages in the Bible. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Read from the English Standard Version, all things is the subject of the sentence. The New International Version states matters a bit differently. It says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good to those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so in the NIV, it is God and not all things that form the subject of the sentence. The all things is not the subject or the object of the sentence, but rather it's the realm or the sphere in which God the subject is working. The New American Standard Bible says things a little differently again. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Here we see that God is again the subject, but all things is the object. Now that should alert us that there are differing ways of constructing the grammar of this very important verse. But it's also easy to see that each of these translations closely resemble each other. Even though it may be possible to make God or all things the subject of the sentence, and even though it is possible to see that the working for the good is the subject or the all things is the subject, in any case, the meaning remains quite similar, at least at the outset. Now, I raise this issue here not because I want to squeeze out minor nuances or differences between these three excellent translations, but rather to show that there are various ways of constructing the grammar of the sentence. But there are those who suggest that this verse can be translated to make it say something different from what has been traditionally understood. One suggested translation would put it this way, in all things, God works for good. That is, from this perspective, it's not that everything works out for good. Indeed, some argue that there are many things that don't work out for good at all. But in the midst of all things, that includes bad things, and that things that really work out badly, God still works out good in spite of all the bad stuff going on. I hope you see the difference. The traditional translation speaks of the sovereignty of God who meticulously arranges every event in the life of a believer for his or her long-term good. And in the second view, it holds that there are a lot of things that are not arranged by God, but in spite of these not good things, God still is working out his good in the midst of them. Another possible translation doesn't like the idea of making God the object or the subject of the sentence at all. And so in this case, they borrow a subject from the preceding paragraph and make the subject the Spirit. You know, in this case, it would be the Spirit who's helping us in our weakness, cooperating for good as for the best possible results for those who love God. And so things might be bad, but thanks be to God, through His help, they are kept from being worse than they could be. But however we phrase the matter, it's easy to see a great divide in people's thinking. Does God direct all things or does he not? Are there things that just happen and God redeems them or does he in some sense cause all things to happen so that the best possible situation ensues? And around this matter, there is considerable debate. 
Let me tell you of two conversations that I've had. One was with a woman who had been diagnosed with an incurable disease which would eventually take her life. She asked me, did God cause this? I told her that the idea of causation was not one I could quickly answer, but that God had deliberately opened the door so that this thing would indeed come into her life. I was going to add something to that. I wanted to tell her that God intended all things for her long-term good, but I never got the words out. She interrupted me. I had no sooner told her that God had opened the door so that this thing would come into her life when she said, I'm so glad for that, for if it were not so, I don't think I could find any peace in this at all. Thank you for affirming this wonderful truth. But now let me tell you a conversation with a man who asked me the same thing regarding a death in his family. I began to answer in the same way, and he also interrupted me, saying, you know, if that were true, I would hate God. And I hope you see how polarizing this discussion actually is. It inspires either grateful thankfulness or passionate rejection. Furthermore, I've found almost no one who stands in the middle on this matter. Now, before we ask ourselves how best to translate Romans 8.28, let's take some time and search the rest of Scripture to see what else we might find to test our theory that God really does cause all things to work together for the good. I want to begin by using a few examples from Old Testament characters, the first being that of Joseph. As we know, it was God who gave him two visions, each one depicting his brothers and father bowing to him, dreams that incited anger and resentment. It was his father who gave him the coat that elevated him above his brothers. Joseph didn't ask for that. His brothers then, in envy, sold him into slavery. His master's wife, enraged because Joseph would not respond to her sexual advances, had him thrown into prison as a sex offender. I mean, Joseph's list of all things can be seen as a list of grievances. Should we think of God in some fashion behind all these matters, or should we think of God managing to work out good in spite of all the evil that had gone on in Joseph's life? I mean, which was it? You'll remember that after Joseph had saved his family from starvation, and after Joseph's father was dead, his brothers began to examine their situation. What if Joseph, now in a position of power and authority over them, decides to repay them for what they'd done? And I'm reading from Genesis 50, verses 18 to 20. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, please notice two things here. According to Joseph, both his brothers and God intended that he be sold into slavery. Slavery is an evil thing, and we have no difficulty saying that it was the action of his brothers to sell him into slavery, but Joseph also believed that it was God's action as well. God sent him into slavery, and that's the first point, and we must not miss it. But the second point is equally important. The difference between God and Joseph's brothers is a difference of intent, and this is no small matter. Ask any lawyer and he'll tell you the question of intent is a highly significant question indeed. Two different men may open up another man with a knife, but what a difference between the knife of a killer and the knife of a surgeon. Or imagine the following scenario. A young man tackles an elderly woman in the street and breaks three of her ribs. Should that young man be charged with evil? Well, that depends on intent. If he tackled her to steal her purse, yes. 
But if he tackled her to get her out of the way of a car careening in her direction, that would surely have killed her unless such a drastic action were taken. Well then, no one would charge that young man with wrongdoing. The action is the same, but the intent is different. And that's the difference between God and Joseph's brothers. Both God and Joseph's brothers worked to sell Joseph into slavery, but Joseph's brothers had evil intent, and God's intent was that Joseph would save his brothers and a whole culture from certain starvation. Had Joseph not been sold into slavery, the promise of the Messiah would not have been fulfilled. I hope you can see the point. God never apologized to Joseph for his slavery, and in time, Joseph would see that behind the terrible series of events that happened in his life came the good and kind and benevolent purposes of God. But is the story of Joseph always true? Or is it sometimes true? Or is it merely a one-off, an exception in a world where lots of things go wonky? Well, if we consider the matter of intent, think of how this matter was used in the story of the Exodus. On numerous occasions, as Moses stands before Pharaoh and demands he let Israel go, the Bible tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And yet, just as often, the Bible also tells us that it was God who hardened his heart. Now, which one was it? And the answer is, well, it was both. In Exodus 9:16, we have God telling Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so, was it good for Pharaoh to harden his heart? Well, from one perspective, no. It's never good for any man to hear the commands of God and then to respond by saying no. Indeed, to refuse God is a great evil. And yet it was a good thing for Pharaoh to harden his heart because as he did, and as God finally devastated all Egypt before the watching world, it became clear that God was mighty in power that there was no God but Yahweh, and that he was to be feared. And that testimony about the nature of the God who existed, that testimony to all nations, was a very good thing. Well, there's so much more to say. Stay tuned, and I'll be right back. As we look at one of the most familiar verses in the entire Bible, Romans 8.28 reveals an extremely important doctrine for us to understand, the sovereignty of God. What we believe about this issue determines how we respond to God, especially when faced with evil. So far, we've learned about how God is sovereign over all things, and all things are intended for our good. There is always a purpose. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld continues to unpack how God is truly in control of everything. Have you heard of our new ministry magazine launching this month? Replacing both our Bible Matters and Life Matters publications, we're introducing one cohesive resource entitled The Truth and Life magazine. Featuring both Bible teaching and engagement articles from author and Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's own Phil Calloway, in doubts Isaac Dagno, and many other guest authors and pastors, the magazine speaks into the issues of life and faith that matter most to you. So if you don't already receive one of our publications, be sure to sign up today for the new and free Truth and Life magazine. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. We've been examining the phrase, all things. 
we could look at numerous examples in Scripture that sound so much like the experience of Joseph. Consider Job 42, verse 11. This passage comes to us at the very end of Job's suffering. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Now that sounds shocking to the untrained ear. For all the evil that the Lord brought upon him? Or consider the remarkably foolish events that occurred in the time of Rehoboam, whose folly led to the division of Israel into two nations. 1 Kings 12.24 says, Thus says the Lord, This thing is from me. Or consider the young and beautiful woman Esther. She's one of the captives who lives in Persia and who is forced into a harem and then married to the king. Why would a good and loving God have allowed a woman's dream of a Jewish husband and a faithful family to be so interrupted by a pagan king's dream for his future? And the answer is found in Esther 4, verse 14, where her uncle tells her, And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Indeed, she had come to the kingdom for such a time, for she was to play a role in the saving of the people of Israel, and had she not been sold into a harem, Israel would have perished. See, is it good to be sold into a harem? Absolutely not. But it is all a matter of intent, and God intended to save his people from wicked men. But no greater illustration of this principle can be found than the cruel and evil death of Jesus. Listen to the testimony of the prayer of the early church recorded in Acts 4, 27-28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You know, it's so important to see that Herod, the chief priests, and the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, along with Pontius Pilate, did a very wicked thing. They crucified Jesus, a righteous man. But God intended that they would do so, and as we have seen, intent is everything. They intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. You know, I, as I speak these words today, I'm reminded of an email I received from a missionary whose two-year-old daughter had a six-centimeter cancerous lump on her spine. You know, I prayed for her immediately. How can that be good? It would be good for God to heal her. That would be good. And that's why I always say, pray for healing. I always pray for healing. If God says no, then so be it. But I will always plead with God for his healing. Now, healing is good, right? But how can a tumor itself be good? If Romans 8.28 says all things, and all things must include tumors, otherwise it's not all things. But how can that be? You see, that's just one example of the things we're talking about becoming intensely personal. We live in a world in which a great many tragedies happen to believers that are not easily understood or explained or made any sense of. They seem like no good can come from matters at all. But let me turn it around. What if all things doesn't include the groaning and futility of creation? What if all things doesn't include cancer and bankruptcy and disaster? What if there are all sorts of things that never worked out for good? Then what? Well, I'll tell you what happens then. Then there are tragedies that will not be redeemed. Then you bear wounds that are for no good purpose other than evil has had its way. Then God is not sovereign at all, for he is only making the best of a bad situation. 
See, we can't have it both ways. Either God will work out all things for good, or he won't and he doesn't. You have no reason to be optimistic if he doesn't, and you have no reason for abiding hope. Your despair then will be no different than despair that makes up this ruined and cursed creation. I know these are real and searching questions. How can all things be for good? But please notice two things that this text doesn't say. First of all, it doesn't say that everything that happens in this world will work out for good. In fact, this promise is a specific promise. It only works out for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If you don't love God, no such promise is made for you. Now, it is true that in grace, God may work some matters out for good to those who don't love him. But he makes no categorical promise to non-believers. For those who don't love God, some things work together for their eternal ruin. Some things are never redeemed. Some things are tragedies whose effects are unending. Furthermore, the twofold statement of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose, these two statements do not describe two different groups of people, but rather are a further elaboration of the one whom God loves. Those who love God, who find in God the the reason for their highest joy, who for the sake of knowing him would gladly renounce all other things, are those who have been called by God according to his own purposes. And the God who called us for himself is determined in meticulous sovereignty to work out every matter in your life for your long-term good. Let me say it again. No promise like this is made to anyone who is not reconciled with God through Jesus. Secondly, this passage doesn't say that everything is good in and of itself. Cancer is not good. It rather says that in the end, everything works together for good. And that brings me back to the grammar of Romans 8.28. The question we had begun with was this. We have noticed that in the traditional and historic rendering of this passage, Paul makes it sound like God is saying that he causes all things to work together for good, or all things are caused by God for the good of his children. Almost every major translation of this verse makes it say precisely that. But will the grammar of Romans 8.28 allow for us to read the other meaning, to simply say that in all things, God works out the good? You know, the problem with reading it this way is that it runs into problems the minute we get to the next verse. Verse 29 speaks of God foreknowing and then predestining us. Everything about this passage speaks of a God who orders all things, who not only arranges the big things, but the small things as well. Furthermore, the all things must include the sufferings of verse 17, where Paul mentions the suffering of Christ. And all things must include the groanings of verse 23, where we groan inwardly as we await the redemption of our bodies. It includes suffering with and for Christ. It includes all the effects of a sin-cursed creation. Furthermore, the idea that all things work together or form some kind of a concert tells us that God so arranges the details in our lives in such a way that they function according to his arrangement. For all these reasons, and more that may be too technical for this program, there are strong reasons for keeping the traditional reading of Romans 8.28 as we have understood it. God causes all things to work together for good. And before I leave this topic, I need to add one more important theme. I've already alluded to the fact that it is not always readily apparent to the believer that all things are for the good. Some things, at least in the present moment, appear as if no good can come from them at all. 
the tragic death of a child, being fired from your job, a major trauma at your local church, or the killing of Christians in certain parts of the world. There are thousands of horrible things that happen all the time that make no sense at all. How can all things really be for good? Of course, we can't answer these questions, but I will always remember something a dear woman told me years ago. She said she had her own paraphrase of Romans 8.28, and it went as follows. Everything is good in the end, she said. And if it's not good, it only means it's not the end yet. And that is the faith of every child of God. I can't see how, but I can see a God whose wisdom and loving kindness is great enough that I will rest my weary heart in his loving breast and trust in him. John, thanks for today. Um, A quick question, not an easy one maybe, but is there a difference between the intention of God and the causation of evil? I mentioned this very briefly in this message, but it does require a great deal of thought. We know that God is never the author of evil, and so however we conceive of this matter, we must not make God somehow creating evil in order that something bad might even happen to us. I I think what we want to say is that God will open the door to an event which is perhaps even horrible at the moment to come our way. He would have prevented that event from happening, but he allows it because he recognizes that a greater good can occur because of it. And so I want to make a distinction between uh, simple causation and God using an event uh, for my own good. Well, I hope today you've been encouraged to know this all-important truth. God causes all things to work together for good. Romans 8.28 affirms the wonderful promise that God is sovereign over everything that happens in our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We all experience the effects of a sin-cursed world, but it's knowing that God has an ultimate purpose that provides hope and meaning to sustain us in those times. So let's continue to trust Him more and rest in His meticulous sovereignty day by day. Join us again tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues the Power of the Gospel series examining the golden chain in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. As a Bible teaching ministry, it's our firm belief that one of the most important things we can do as believers is to read and study God's Word regularly, if not daily. Without this spiritual discipline, we'll not grow into maturity or intimacy with God. At the heart of Back to the Bible Canada is this passion to see the life that God has for people through His Word, to tell our nation and the world of who God is and what He's done for us so lives can be changed for eternity. Do you share our passion today? The reason you and so many others across Canada can listen to this program, whether it's on the radio, podcast, online, or on one of our new mobile applications, is because of the dedicated ministry friends who partner with us to share God's Word. If this ministry or any of our resources have encouraged you, perhaps you'd consider supporting us in prayer and a financial gift to sustain this and all of our ministry programs. To find out how you can help, 
please visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.